Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today happens to be show number 14 and what we're going to be doing, just so you know, we're going to continue on talking about those additional forms that they have in the book, in the uh, textbook that you would be utilizing when you were working with a buyer or in some cases a seller or additional forms. Before we do that, I just want to mention something to you. The next time that we have a show, what we're going is we have a home inspector that's coming in. His name is Andy Dixon. And this was an individual we had come in as a guest speaker on our real estate principles show. And the concept that we had is we wanted you to all, we're consistently or constantly trying to introduce more people, professionals from within the industry and bring them in as guest speakers. So and the concept behind having Andy come in is, is that you, when you get out in the industry and you're either, either uh, if you're, usually if you're helping a buyer, what's going to happen is one of the things that the buyer is going to be uh, possibly be asking you, especially nowadays because homes have gotten to be fairly complex and expensive to repair, is they're going to want you to advise them on hiring somebody called a home inspector. So on Thursday, this home inspector, whose name is Andy Dixon, is going to be coming in. And we're going to kind of run it like a question and answer session. We've already pre-taped it. So when you see it, it's, it's going to be something we've already done. It'll also be up on the Blackboard website. I believe in our case, that'll be show 15. And the idea is that you understand, see what one of these people look like, what kind of an inspection they do, what kind of credentials they're required to have, or licensing, if you will. Uh, the other thing is, is just so you and understand how to go about hiring one of these people. In other words, do you just pick the phone book up and start calling names, or do you actually try to find somebody and build a relationship with them so that you know when you're ready and your buyer is looking for a home inspector, you have somebody that you think is a really good person, is going to do a really good job, and not going to be somebody that's going to kill your deal on you, not somebody that's going to come up with you know 30,000 things wrong with the house, but somebody's going to go out find the things that need to be corrected, give you some advice on how to go about correcting those uh, problems, and uh, as essentially assist with the selling process. And as time goes by, you're going to see probably more and more use of home inspectors. Already we have termite inspectors we use for a lot of our real estate sales transactions. You're probably going to see more home inspectors coming along the line. So anyway, I wanted to let you know that that's what uh, show 15 will be about, which we'll, uh, we'll be broadcasting the next time. Anyway, where we left off uh, in um, last, I think it was uh, last Tuesday, if memory serves me correctly, where we left off was talking about those additional forms that they discuss in Chapter 7 of your book. And the concept behind this is that, again, you are going to be filling out something like a purchase offer. And as a result of filling out that purchase offer over a series of years, what's happened is, is real estate agents have gotten together and have said, you know, I'm kind of wearing my hand out, writing out all these additional requirements. And I think it would be nice if we had a pre-printed form in which I could just check the check boxes or write in, this, you know, some basic information. And oh, by the way, while we're at it, why don't we have the uh, attorneys at the California Association of Realtors review these forms and make sure that everything that we're doing is legal meets the law requirements. And so that's what we're talking about. So I'm going to continue on with what those forms are, give you an idea of what they, uh, what's covered in them, and then in the end show you a little bit of a matrix and discuss that there's a lot of other additional forms that you can use. And remember, there are additional forms for listing agreements, there are additional forms for buyers, there are additional forms for leasing property, renting property, 
applying for uh, 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 the ability to apply for or, uh, to rent a piece of property. So there's lots and lots of forms, and the whole concept again is that they're already there. You can check the boxes, fill in the appropriate stuff, and it's also been reviewed by an attorney, and you make sure you're following the most current laws. So what I'm going to do is move over here to my old friendly document camera. And I think where we left off was basically on this page right here, which was page 263. And on page 263, uh, they basically give you a form. And one of the things I wanted to point out, and I'm going to point this out at the end of the form, each one of these forms that they're showing you has a little bit of a, of a discussion or a little bit of an explanation of the purpose of the form at the bottom of the page. And so what they're doing is they're saying, this is a broker-generated form intended to reduce agent broker liability should the buyer decline a recommended professional physical inspection. So what this again is, is that as I've mentioned before, you're not only going to find forms that, that the California Association of Realtors have created for you to use, but you're also going to probably find companies. You're going to find real estate brokerages in which they have maybe had some form of a problem in the past and they have gotten advice from their attorneys and said you know what you need in this particular case you need to have the buyer sign an additional form that essentially holds us harmless that notifies them that they have the every right in the world to have an inspection and if they decide not to hire an inspector then they need to sign this form that is, is, is acknowledging the fact that they've been told that they can and they're declining it so that later on if there's a problem with the house and they come back to us we can pull that format and say we told you to hire a home inspector we advised you to and you decided not to hire one okay we did everything we could to, ha to make that happen and you decided not to do it and these are inspectors are not very expensive they usually start out at somewhere around three to four hundred dollars and then basically the, the the fee that they charge as you'll see on Thursday really has to do with the size and the amount of work so the larger the house the more square footage the more the fee goes up and it's usually a scheduled fee uh, if they have to crawl underneath the house it co may cost more or on, in the, on the roof or in the attic it may cost more but anyway this form is something that the brokerage has generated an example the next form that we want to talk about is something called, uh, for our friends, called the Wood Destroying Pest Inspection and Allocation of Cost Addendum. Now again, this is a form that's created by the California Association of Realtors. It has to do with when we do this inspection for termites. And what happens is, is that the, this inspection is looking for any active infestations that have happened. In other words, we go out there and take a flashlight and say, my goodness, look at all of those termites crawling underneath the house. So they're going to look, this, this is what this report has to do with. And down the bottom of this form, and again, I'll pull this up so you can see what this is. It says this agreement, and hopefully I'll get this big enough so it'll show up on the TV. Okay. It says this agreement is between the seller and the buyer about who will pay for repairs on Section 1, required repairs, and Section 2, recommended repairs. Remember, termite reports have two different sections. Section 1 problems are where they find things like existing dry rot. Dry rot essentially is where you go over to the wood and you tap on the wood and it's soft and you, all of a sudden the next thing you know it starts falling apart. That's dry rot. Typically that's caused uh, when you have water, like in a bathroom and it gets wet and there's no way for the water to evaporate or dry out and what happens is it sits there for a long period of time it sort of makes the wood soft 
And I've seen houses where if you stood in the shower, you possibly could fall right through the shower floor and end up in the downstairs um, living room or something like that, or the toilet would fall down. I've seen houses that bad. I mean, it, it, so you're looking for those kinds of things. So those are usually things like dry rot. Essentially, they're around areas like uh, in bathrooms, kitchens, underneath the sink. They're in areas wherever you have two pieces of wood that are joining together where you may have an area where moisture can get trapped in there. And one of the big areas on the outside of the house are areas where you have decking, wood decking that touches the edge of the house, the side of the house, and the house is made out of wood because what happens, especially if you have leaves that fall down on, uh, from the trees, that keeps the wa water in there, and the next thing you know, it doesn't, it doesn't dry out, and it causes the dry rot. So you may very well find out that you have to replace the entire deck or the beams underneath the deck. So that's that. The other kind of thing that you'll see is where you have infestation due to termites. And they usually, you can see them, they're fairly obvious. You see little holes that are, look like somebody took a little drill and drilled through the, through the wood. And what's happening is, is that they can actually eat out the whole entire beam and structure of a house and have it collapsed if it's not corrected. So they usually inspect for that. And then they'll also look for things that are potentially, if the wood is currently touching the ground, even if it's not dry rotted or termite infested, even if it touches the ground, you know, where there's moisture that can be wicked up into the wood, they'll say, listen, you need to get that wood and put some kind of a barrier like concrete or steel or some kind of metal between the wood and the ground. So they'll, that, that'll be something that'll be need to be fixed. Section two has to do with things that they find as a result of their inspection. Some of the examples I've seen are things like loose toilets, uh, siding on the house that's delaminating, or it's not rotted, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just the sort of the glue is a little bit loose on it. Um, normally what will happen is, is that your lenders are going to require that section one is taken care of and repaired is required to be repaired or they will not fund, will not, will not give you the money. Section 2 are things that need to be corrected or, or are recommended to be corrected, but they're not showstoppers. And the purpose of this form, as it says, this is who's going to pay for it. So it's part of the negotiating process. So remember, when you make the offer on the house, one of the things you've done is you've made a contingent upon a termite inspection. Now what's happened is the offer's been accepted, the seller's accepted it, you go into contract, you make your deposits, and now all of a sudden the termite person comes out maybe three, four, five days or a week later and does their inspection. Two or three days after they do their inspection, they produce this report. Now this report is given to a lot of different people, the buyer, the seller, it's given to a lot of different people. Now the question is, is who's going to make these repairs? In some cases, if they're minor repairs, the seller may turn around and just say, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. I'll fix it. But if they, they may realize that, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that the deck is about ready to fall off the house, and that's going to be $10,000 to fix it. So you're talking about who's going to pay for these repairs. So that's what this form is. So anyway, down below this it says, completion of Section 1 satisfies the lender's requirement. You must guide your client when filling out this form to include all buildings on the site, such as detached garages, covered patios, decking, cabanas. This form is also included with uh, the purchase agreement for the seller's approval and signature. And essentially what this is doing up here is it's just telling you that this inspection report was done. It says, we're destroying pests to the buyer and the seller, and who's, who shall pay for this work? That's what it's really doing. Who shall pay for it? It's in a written agreement and it is signed 
by both the buyer and the seller of who's going to make those repairs. Okay, and that's something that needs to be done as part of your transaction. Okay. The next form that they have in here that you may very well find yourself doing, dealing with, and your clients aren't going to see this. This is actually a form that's going to be between the two brokerages. And that has to do with who's going to get paid the commission. Now, there's an understanding that when you belong to the multiple listing system, there's an understanding that usually what happens is, is the total commission, which is customarily is usually about 6%, is split between the brokerages 50-50. So in other words, what that means is if you have a piece of property that you're selling and the property is, is a $100,000 house, or not that any exists, but let's just say $100,000 for simplicity's sake, what happens is the commission on that would be $6,000. Under a normal 50-50 split through MLS, that means one brokerage, brokerage, not agent, but brokerage is going to get $3,000. The other brokerage will get $3,000. Where you may very well find this form being a little bit different is where you're dealing with somebody, for example, uh, where there might be a negotiation on where you may get paid more commission, like you're selling a home for, uh, for example, a lot of people that are selling new homes now. New homes are sitting on the market for a long period of time. When the market is really hot and homes are easy to sell, Usually you may find uh, people, out, the, the builders that are building the house may say, well, listen, I'm not going to pay commission to any of my, you know, anybody else except the people that work for me. Because guess what? Everything I can build is being consumed. We have no problem selling houses, okay? That's a couple years ago. Now you may find out that you walk into the same uh, open house uh, two year, today, and you may find out that that company may be willing and pay you a commission. That's, that's what they're doing now. In fact, the typical thing is, is that you're driving down the street, client looks out the window and says, who owns that house with that sign on? And you say, oh, that's a new house that's a, being sold by a builder. So you stop the car, pull over to the side, you take your client, you walk into the model, and usually the questions that you ask is you pick up the brochures and within the first couple sentences, you kind of either mumble or ask the, the person that's, holding the, uh, the, that's working for the uh, builder, What's the split? In other words, how much is your builder going to pay an outside agent for selling one of those homes? And you're going to want to know. So you can find out that that will differentiate, especially as builders have more and more inventory sitting on the market. So this is just talking about how they're going to split those fees. Okay? And um, as it goes down here, it says this is an agreement between, uh, between the two brokers on the, current re uh, on the amount received by the selling agent. It is not presented to the buyer or the seller who are already has agreed to the amount of commission to be paid in the residential listing agreement. Okay, So in other words, you're not presenting this back to your client and asking them to renegotiate that. They've already agreed when they listed the property how much they're going to pay in commission. So it, uh, it is important to remember that this is not the time for the selling agent to ask the, uh, for a larger split. In other words, the per people... In other words, when you show this agreement, this is not where all of a sudden the buyers, the people representing the buyers say, hey, listen, instead of getting 3%, I want 4 No, that's not the point because if you belong to the MLS, it's understood that you're, you're going to work on a 50-50 split. Um, so it's not the time to do that. And it goes on and says, to ask for a larger split than has been offered in the multiple listing service. Should this happen, and it often does, you, as the listing agent, should include the counter to the buyer 
that commission will be paid in accordance with the MLS listing. Do not get the buyer involved in any commission splits, okay? The thing is, is this is a contract or something that you're talking about between the two agents. You don't want to have the clients getting involved in these, and you know, and and you negotiating this if there is a negotiation. Okay, next, next form they have in here is something called the counter offer. Remember that whenever you make an offer on a piece of property, a purchase offer, if if you make that offer, and the you know the as the buyer's agent, if you make that offer, and the listing agent. The person that has the property for sale listed for sale. If the, if the buyer, if the list, if the person that owns the home accepts the offer, that's it. You're in contract. So, as an example, if I'm selling a piece of property and I'm asking four hundred thousand dollars for it, and somebody comes in comes in with their with the uh, with their buyer and they say, "Hey, I agree to that. I'll I'll pay the guy four hundred thousand dollars. I'll agree to his terms, and then I accept that offer. We're now in contract." But that normally does not happen on a regular basis. What happens is, is that usually the buyer will do something like make an offer. Typically, unless it's a hot market, they'll usually make the offer at a price that's below the asking price. So if the asking price is $400,000, they may say, listen, I'll offer you $375,000. Because they figure, you know what? $25,000 better in my pocket than theirs, right? The seller, the buyer could also do things like, for example, during their purchase offer could say, you know, by the way, I want the seller to pay all the escrow and title fees. I want the seller to pay for the termite repairs. In other words, they could put everything in their initial offer that they want. But it may get to the point where when the, when the, when the person that's selling the property gets that offer and says, you know, listen, I, I could see the price and I could see that, but I am not going to pay their escrow and title fees and I'm going to limit you know, the amount of fee, of costs that I'm going to be responsible for for termite work and also for home inspector. In other words, you have something, you're going to agree to their terms, but you don't, you're going to counter back to them. You're going to, you know, more or less argue back and forth on the price, okay? The ter correct document that we use is something called a counteroffer, and that's what this document is. And um, what I'm going to do is read this little thing down the bottom right here. Well, actually, this down the bottom tells you most of what it is. It says, when an offer is not accepted in its entirety, counteroffers are made back and forth between the parties. It, uh, if you have more than two counteroffers, it is per preferable to start from scratch and incorporate all the changes in, in eliminating. The point is, is that if you go offer, counteroffer, offer, counteroffer back and forth, it can get to be kind of muddy because you're constantly having to go back to the original document to figure out what part of that document is still correct. So what they're essentially saying is, listen, if you get that far, maybe what you're better off to do is just create a new offer on it, okay? But suffice it to say, if you look at this document, what this is doing is it's giving you, um, up here at the top, you have a place where you have a counter offer number. So is this counter offer number one, number two, number three, number four, which counter offer it happens to be? This gives you the date. Okay, I'll zoom back out again, and hopefully you're watching along on your book. This is your date at where the property is located. These are the terms, and then this is where you write in the terms and the expiration of those terms. It's all listed down here. Okay, so I may very well counter back on anything. I can counter back on any particular thing that's been offered. I can counter back on sales price. I can counter back on Remember, if you just remember, every single thing in real estate is negotiable. So it could be sales price, it could be points, it could be 
the amount of time you're going to be allowed to close the transaction. You may have wanted, say for example, it's not uncommon for a buyer to say escrow to close in 60 days and the seller may turn around and come back and say, listen, 60 days is not going to work for me. I, I'm only going to give you 45. You've got to finish. Uh, so there could be anything, anything along the line at all that you're going to be countering back on. That's what this counteroffer is. And because it's all written out, it's a lot easier, you know, than you having to ha carry around a book with a bunch of paragraphs in it that you have to rewrite every time, every offer. You just check off what you need. Okay, so that's that document. The next one, this one's a little bit strange. It's called the Buyer's Affidavit. And in order for you to understand what this is, is it has to do with withholding. If you're dealing with somebody that is from, uh, from a, far, a foreign investment property. And down the bottom, this will explain what this is. It says, um, let me see if I can zoom back out again. Okay, and if you look at the top of the document, you'll look at what it says. It says it's a buyer's affidavit. Let me zoom in here for a minute. It's a buyer's affidavit. Uh, the, that the buyer is acquiring property for use as a residence and that sales price does not exceed $300,000. It says the Foreign Investment in Real Estate Property Tax Act, and this is the name of the form, okay? Again, this is another one of those forms that could change based on whatever the law is. And essentially, this down here is another one of those forms that you may be involved in. Okay, let me zoom back in here. It says this should be signed by a buyer when appropriate. It involves the Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act. There are exemptions from the withholding portions of the sales price of the property being purchased, such as the price being no more than $300,000 and that the property will be in the buyer's principal residence. If the buyer has any questions about this form, refer him to her attorney, certified public accountant, so on and so forth. Okay, this is just another form that you're going to have to fill out if it falls into that category. Next form. This form right here is something where you're requesting a request for repairs. And so what you're doing in this form is that you're asking the seller to do some repair work on the property. Something is wrong and you're asking them to make the repair work. I'm going to kind of read this down here and point out a couple things. Um, Hopefully we can see this on the screen fairly clearly. It says, after obtaining various inspections as recommended by the buyer's advisory, remember you have that buyer's advisory that they've been notified and signed, in which they have, they have the right to get these inspections. And remember, there's a whole bunch of different inspections they can get. They can get termite inspections. They can get uh, home inspector reports. They can get roof inspections, pool inspections, hot tub inspections. It just goes on and on and on with the different types of inspections that you have. The whole concept of the inspection is that the buyer is trying to reduce their cost, their future costs and liability, by finding out the condition of the current property. What they're trying to do is not move in and find out all of a sudden that the range or the oven or the pool has a leak or some other problem. That's what they're trying to do. So it says, after return, obtaining various inspections, inspections as re recommended by the buyer's advisory, the buyer may request the seller to make desired repairs. So you think about it for a minute. If they find out the roof is leaking, you may turn around and say to the seller, I want you to fix it. Okay? Or if the deck has got dry rot, I want you to fix it. Or if the pool's got a leak or the equipment's not working right, I want you to fix it. I'm not going to fix it. You fix it. 
So it said this is a, is a wish list that the seller may partially or completely agree to do or may agree or may not agree to do at all. So and again, this is, for example, one of the students in one of my classes had sold a piece. No, it wasn't a, it was one of the people that uh, was uh, one of the speakers that came into our internship class. And this lady was telling everybody that they had had a home inspector and what the and the inspector had written up that you know there were these little itty bitty nail holes you know in the house where they had hung pictures and what happened is is that when they got the report there was just a lot of of uh, all kinds of stuff written up a lot of nitnoy little junky stuff and they finally got frustrated with them and they said I'm not going to fix it I'm not fixing those if you want the house fine but I am not going to fix those things and remember, what they're filling out here is a wish list. So, and you have to be careful with how you present this. If you present a list of 50, 60, 70 things that they have to fix, you know, you may very well end up having them say, I'm not going to fix anything. Forget about it. So what you're really going to do is you should be sitting there with the client and saying, okay, which portions of these things do you want fixed? What's more important to you? If the pool filter is not working correctly, should that be something you fix? So let's argue over that and get that fixed, and let's not argue over those stupid little nail holes that are in the wall. We'll take care of those. Okay, so you need to figure out what that happens to be. It says, if an impasse is reached at this time that cannot be resolved between the parties, the escrow may need to be canceled. Buyer gets their deposit back. Okay, so in other words, you can get to the point where you've made it so that that the buyer's not going to fix it, the seller's not going to take it, and the next thing you know, the whole deal falls apart. Okay, very possible, unless you as the agent know how to handle this stuff. Um, it goes on, it says, purchase agreement within the specified period, such as a loan, appraisal, buyer's investigation, title as part of the preliminary report in paragraph 12. So they're just giving you all kinds of different reasons, different types of inspections there in which you're going to find things. Uh, what's going to happen on this form, just to go up at the top, what you're going to do if we can, I wish I could blow this up a little bit more. Um, it says, in accordance with, let me see if I can blow this back out again. Okay, one more maybe. It says, in accordance with the terms and the conditions of the California Purchase Rental Agreement on the property known as, you're describing the property between who the buyer and the seller is. The buyer requests the seller repair the following items or take specific action prior to the final verification and condition and what it is is this is where you write everything out on the form okay fix the pool paint the house whatever it happens to be that you want done a copy of the following inspection reports are attached so for example if you've discovered this as a result of those reports you attach all those reports in fact if it was me and I wanted to do that I would probably not only list it on the agreement I would have taken the report and probably highlighted and identified where in the report the problem has been found because it may actually add to the to the effort or to the the reason why we need to have it done based on the language in the report in other words the report may say if you don't fix this here's the problem because a lot of those inspection reports will not only say there's a problem but they'll tell you what code violation there is for example, if the electrical panel is not wired correctly, they'll say, panel, repair the panel. Home inspection report shows that the panel is not wired correctly. Okay, so you know, and you're going to cite 
that report will usually cite where the violation is, the code violation that you have. So then the seller knows that, listen, I now have been put on notice that this is a problem. They've given me a code violation. Now I've been told that there's a problem with it. Okay, even if I don't fix it, I now have to disclose it because now I have knowledge of it. Okay, so you have to watch what's happening. So a copy of those reports. This is where the seller's response to the request. Okay, in other words, what's the seller going to do? If the buyer agrees to remove in writing the following contingencies, okay, the seller will, and this is the seller agrees to repair and take other specific action on the items. What we're doing here is on the contingencies, we're saying that, remember, when you make your purchase offer, that purchase offer is contingent upon certain things happening. So what you're really doing is saying, okay, I'll fix this, but I want you to remove from the contract that you have now received the inspection report, and this is how we're going to resolve it. Okay, remove that contingency off the report. So in other words, you've now been given the report, you've now read the report, and you now know what it is. Did you have a question? Push the button if you have a question. Um, yeah, is this done before going into contract or after? After. His question is, is it done before or after going into the contract? Remember, what happens is, is that the buyer makes the offer. And in the offer, they say, you know, I want to pay $400,000. I want to move in 60 days from now. You know, they put all those things in there. Built right into the contract are all these contingencies. In other words, contingent upon the buyer reading and reviewing the preliminary title report to see if there's any problems with the title. The buyer reading and reviewing the termite report. Because you may go and look at a house and it looks great. But then when you get the termite report, you find that the foundation's about ready to fall down. And if you read the report and think the damage is too severe, you want to be able to back out and say, listen, give me my money back. Or if you, if you get a, a report from a home inspector and, and he says, you know what, the way that they wired that spare bedroom, the electrical wiring in there is a, is a violation. You know, I've done a test on that. There's, you know, there's too many outlets on the circuit breakers or the wires are not right or it's not connected correctly. It's a fire hazard. You want to be able to say to the seller, listen, I didn't notice that when I went through and did the, you know, when I looked at the house, I was only, because when you think about it, a buyer's only in the house probably on the, their initial inspection, their initial review for probably maybe 20 minutes, a half hour. If they really like it, maybe a little longer. That's about it. They're not going around checking all the outlets and the power. So then when the home inspector comes in, that's where they're finding things are incorrect. Okay. So anyway, you're asking them to do that. And then down here it says buyer's reply to seller's response. So in other words, you have a place for the buyer to put their thing, a place for the seller to make their response, and a place for the, for the buyer to make their response. So it says the buyer accepts the seller's response, withdraws all requests of items, okay, or the buyer withdraws the request in item one, whatever. So in other words, this is just a pre-written thing that you check off. So you don't have to rewrite that every time. How you're responding. So the concept is... Buyer finds a problem, discloses it to seller. Seller then looks at it and says, I am or I am not going to fix it. The seller responds back in writing about what they're going to do. Then the buyer either accepts that response or rejects it, one or the other. Okay. And then finally down the bottom, okay, so anyway, this is the buyer and the date and where you sign off on it. Okay, that's that form. Okay. 
Um, I don't know. I don't even know if I can project these really well. This is on the next page down here. I'm going to blow this up, which you probably can't even see in your book. This is on, two pa uh, on one page. It's on page 269. This part right here, let me see if they even give you any language on what these things are. They don't. Okay. Okay, let me move these back down a little bit in here. Down the bottom of this page, right here, this is where the buyer acknowledges which reports and disclosures he or she received and checks the appropriate contingency removals. Remember, when you make the offer, you're the buyer. It's contingent upon these reports. Once you receive the reports and you approve the reports, you want to have some way to get the report off. You want to have some way to say, I have read that report, I agree with the report, I want to sign that I have done that and remove that as a contingency, and I want to do that in writing. Okay, I want to do it in writing. Okay, and what this form is doing here, and I'm going to kind of blow it up, is this, and everybody I've ever talked to, you once you start this writing process, you need to keep it going. Okay. This is just talking about the receipt for report number, okay? It says, in accordance with the items and the conditions of the California Residential Purchase Agreement or other agreement between the buyer and the seller, the buyer acknowledges receipt of the following reports, documents, inspection reports, disclosure reports, whatever it happens to be. And then down below, this is where they check off which report it is that they're talking about. So this is for wood-destroying termite. Domestic, oh, let me see, uh, septic system, uh, home inspection report, all that stuff, preliminary uh, title report, you sign, you're checking those, you're putting who it was prepared by, the date, and you're just listing all those reports. That's so that you, in writing, remove those from the contract. Okay. So therefore, once it's removed, the buyer can't come back later on and say, I never got a copy of that report and I want to kill the deal. They've gotten it in writing, they've acknowledged it. Um, and then the form just goes on. Contingency removals are very important that you do that and get it in writing that it's done. Next form. This is something called seller to perform. Let me see if this has any language down here. This is on the bottom of page 270. If the seller is not able or not willing to perform terms and conditions agreed to Upon the original purchase agreement, the buyer's agent forwards this form to the seller's agent advising that the buyer may cancel his or her offer if the request is not complied with in a timely fashion. So what you're doing is you're notifying them that, hey, listen, we had an agreement. That agreement was in writing that you, the seller, were going to do certain things, and you haven't done them. And because you haven't done them, I can turn around and cancel the transaction. Okay, that's what this is about. So it says, notice to the seller to perform. In accordance with the terms and the conditions of the agreement between the buyer and the seller, the property known as, what you're doing is that the buyer hereby gives the seller notice that the buyer has not received from the seller the items checked below. If the seller does not provide the buyer with these items, the buyer may be entitled to cancel the agreement or delay removing an applicable contingency. And these are all the various typical reports that the seller is required to provide, such as covenants, conditions, and restrictions, um, uh, 
lead disclosures, like if you have lead paint, wood destroying pests, any of those reports. So you're just be going, the buyer's going back and saying, listen, we can't go any further ahead. You told me when we made the deal that you were going to provide some information to me. You haven't provided it to me. I'm putting you on notice that if you don't do that, I'm going to cancel a transaction, period. Okay? That was part of our original agreement. It's a notice. Okay? So that's what this document is for. Okay? Um, let me see what else is in here. Title, just make sure that we know what's on here. I'm going to, let me just see. Some of the things that are on here, just so you would know, these are the contractual things. It could be a report, a delivery of the wood-destroying pest control report. That would be typically, by the way, if the seller was the one that actually initiated the report. Like I think I mentioned in here before, when I got ready to sell my house, I actually went out and, and got a termite inspection before I ever put it on the market. And the reason why I did that is I wanted to make sure I caught everything and had all the work done because I knew that once it went on the market that I'd have a relatively short period of time. And I knew that getting contractors, if I needed them to do the work, was very difficult. So I wanted to get that done ahead of time. So I would be the one. Uh, delivery of the following inspection report. Delivery of the lead disclosures. Remember that you have to add disclosures that whether or not you have lead paint. Um, Delivery of the following uh, statutory disclosures, and then you can list these out. And this is disclosure of the common interest development. This would be like if it's a condominium or a townhouse. Uh, delivery, uh, let me see, disclosure of known property insurance claims. That's another thing you're going to find out. If you have insurance claims against a property, you may not realize this, but you're asked that on your, on your, on your disclosure. If you're an owner of a property and you've had insurance claims, you have to disclose that to the buyer. So here they're asking you, what, 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 what were those problems? And they may be leading to other problems. They may very well want to know that you, know, you had a claim because a tree fell into the roof and knocked a big hole in it, and the whole house got saturated. So you may be saying something like, you know, that would make a difference to me whether I would buy it because that could have allowed mold to get into the house or something. Okay. Uh, delivery of the preliminary title report. Remember, you want to know, is there any liens, judgments, easements that are going to affect the property in the way you're going to use it? Um, approval of and verification of down payment and closing costs. Okay. So anyway, these are all the different things for that. Next, if we have one for the seller to perform, we have one for the buyer to perform. Okay. The buyer. Remember, the buyer is the one that's coming in and has got to come up with the money, the down payment. They've got to come up with the down payment. They've got to come up with the loan. They've got to get approved by a lender to get the loan. They've got a lot of things they've got to do on their part. So down here, again, this is notice to buyer to perform. And this is where you make the offer. And say, for example, the offer is contingent upon the buyer getting financing. And what you want to do is you want to have you want to be no, you want to be notified, and you may give them a short period of time, like maybe three to five days, that you want to know that they're approved for lending, or for a loan, because what's going to happen is you don't want to take the property off the market for three weeks, only to find out that they don't qualify for the loan. So that's a contingency on their part. So anyway, these would be contingencies here. This is things such as the seller. To read this one little thing here. It says the seller hereby gives the buyer notice to remove the following contingencies or take specific contractual action. 
This would be things like contingencies would be the loan, uh, the loan, the appraisal, if it's tenant-occupied house, okay, uh, that they've read and know the disclosure reports, you may want acknowledgement back that they've done that. Uh, title reports, okay, so these are all the things that they would have to take. This is the contingencies and these are the contractual requirements. So it might be, for example, you may say to them, I need, hey, I need to have you come in with the, your initial deposit. Or another thing that a lot of agents will do, listing agents will do, is they'll say, listen, after we remove these contingencies, I want the buyer to come in with more money as a down payment. I want to see that they're serious. You know, they only gave us a small amount of down payment. I want them to increase their down payment to show that they are honestly and truly and sincerely interested in this property. And the way I want to do it is once I deliver and remove those problems, I want you to increase your deposit. I want you to put more money on the loan. You may have things like a loan application letter that you've asked for that and you want to get that from the buyer. You may have things like down payment verification. Where is the down payment coming in? Um, uh, return, uh, let me see, uh, you know, anything else that's in here, increased deposit, we've already talked about that. So anyway, this is the buyer's side is what this is, okay? Next one. This is something called the verification of property condition. Okay, and this is what we call the buyer final, fi buyer final inspection. This is the inspection that gets done, which is usually the last day or two before you actually move into the house. That's when this is done. And the concept is we call this a lot of times a walkthrough. And down the bottom down here, they'll, they'll tell you what this is. It says, uh, let me see, I'll zoom out a little bit here. It says, this is the final walkthrough a few days prior to the closing of the sale confir um, confirming that the property is basically in the same conditions that it was when, they, uh, when the offer was made and that the agreed upon repairs and or alterations have been made in a satisfactory uh, fashion. Essentially what's happening is during this time, usually at this point, this is when the client that's selling the house normally has everything moved out or hopefully may have everything moved out. So you're going through and taking a look to see, hey, did they actually fix the hole in the wall? Did the stove that wasn't working right, did they fix that? Uh, are things in good working order? This is usually the last day or two before you close a transaction. The person that takes you through is, if you're the real estate agent representing the buyer, normally what will happen is you'll be the one escorting the people through. And they're looking at the fight excuse me, the final inspection, and looking, for example, oh, by the way, did the, did the seller keys leave the drapes that we talked about? Are the drapes there? We put that in there that we wanted the drapes to stay. Did they leave the refrigerator? You know, any of those things. Uh, you'll have people that will go through. Some will be real detailed-oriented. They're going to want to check the electrical outlets. They're going to want to flush the toilets, turn the, the faucets on, turn the trash compactor on. But that's that final inspection. And hopefully, if everybody's done everything right, they don't find anything on this, on this walkthrough. Usually, if everybody's done what they're supposed to, it goes pretty smooth. Up here, it's just this part here just tells you what the purpose of the inspection is. And then down below is where you can write anything that you may find during the inspection. Okay, signed off by the buyer and the seller. That's what that is. Okay, that takes care of, I think, most of the forms that are in the book, okay? This matrix that's here that starts on page 273, this purpose of this 
is to give you an idea of what other forms are available that they have not shown you. So that you would know, for example, that the form exists and how you go about using it. To know that even one's there so you don't have to make up your own. So what they do is they break this down. Let me see here for a minute. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What they do down here on the left-hand side is they show you what the subject is. So this is the real estate disclosure summary report. Uh, this right here, the subject is availability of title insurance. Down here, it tells you what's going to trigger the requirement for that form. So remember, for you to use a form, you have to have a trigger. You have to have something that's going to fire it off for you to use it. So as an example here, underneath the disclosure trigger, we'll take this one form. It says uh, advisability, uh, availability, advisability of title insurance, disclosure trigger, an escrow transaction for the purchase of simultaneous exchange of real property where a policy of title insurance will not be issued to the buyer. Okay, we'll find some better ones than this. Disclosure requirement, the form that you required is right here. It says the buyer must receive the statutory notice. The, the, the law does not specify who is responsible for providing this notice. And then right here is the code, the civil code that covers that. Okay. Um, let me see if we can find one. Let's take something like um, areas flooding. Let's see what this is. Areas of potential flooding. Okay. So what we're talking about is area of potential flooding in the event of a dam or a reservoir failure. That's what we're talking about. So in other words, is the property going to be located in an area where this could potentially happen? What triggers this form? The sale of real property if the seller or the seller's agent has, has actual knowledge or a list has been compiled by parcel and the notice posted at the local county recorder, assessor, and planning agency also applies to manufactured homes, so on and so forth. So that's what it is if, you, if, you've, if it's been identified that it is a flood problem. Over here gives you, um, gives you the disclosure requirements. So the seller's agent or the seller without the agent must disclose to the buyer if the property is in this area, an area of potential flooding, as designated on the inundation map, if a parcel is listed, has been par uh, prepared by the county. So in other words, they're just telling you that this, there's a map that shows where this property is. If you look at the flood control area, they have flood control zones, and they'll have where the par properties are that are affected. And what you're doing is you're disclosing this to the buyer, that this is a potential flood hazard, fl flood area. And there are some of those areas who are really getting concerned about those that are around where we have uh, levees, dikes, all that, that they could possibly break and they could flood, flood where you are. So that's what this is doing. And then down here over the right is telling you the CIR information source, and this happens to be the Natural Hazard Disclosure Statement. Okay? So anyway, I think, let me see if we have uh, any others in here that would be of interest. Okay, let me see here if we would have something. Here's something that I think may be interesting. Subject. Okay, subject. Drug lab. Release of illegal controlled substance. Okay, that would be the subject. 
When is this disclosure required? Transfer or exchange of residential property of one to four units and lease of any residential dwelling unit. This form is required. Okay. Disclosure requirement. This tells you what the disclosure requirement. In the event that toxic contamination by an illegal controlled substance has occurred on the property and upon receipt of notice from the Department of Top Toxic Substances, substances uh, Control, or other agency or seller. So in other words, this is covering if you have essentially spilt anything or contaminated the area. In case of a rental property, the landlord must give the prospective tenant written notice of the toxic contamination, providing that the tenant with a copy of that notice. Okay, and then this is the civil code that covers that. Okay, so again, it's always those disclosures that you have. In other words, if you go back to those initial disclosure statements, when somebody's listing a property, they have to, the seller has to disclose all of that stuff. You know, is it in an earthquake zone? Uh, is, is, has somebody died in the property? I mean, all those things. Then your next question is, what forms do I use with, the, with that disclosure? That's what this is. I'm trying to see if we have um, any others in here that we need. Okay, here's one that deals with flood disaster insurance requirements, okay? Okay, applicable for any flood disaster declared uh, by that date, any transfer of personal or mobile homes, residential or commercial property where the owner received federal flood disaster assistance conditioned on the owner subsequently obtaining and maintaining flood insurance, okay? Uh, for example, like if you get ready, uh, I know of one in particular because I own the property uh, over where Woodside is off of Howe Avenue. Those, those condos, those townhouses all in that area are in the flood control zone. So one of the things that you have to do is when you're getting ready to sell the property, you have to disclose that you're in the flood zone. You also have to tell them and provide for them because it's purchased through the homeowners association the fact that you have flood insurance. And over the years, those have those things flooded? Yes, there have been floods in that area. There have been areas where they've come up, as far as I know, as far uh, covering the whole entire first story of the building. Okay. Now, there have been over the years, and the other thing to be cautious of is that ha have been over the years a lot of repairs done to the things like the, the levees, the dikes, all those other infrastructure that keeps that water out. And in fact, a couple, about a year and a half ago, they read designated certain areas, uh, you know, took the, the flood zone requirements away. But you are going to want to make sure that if you are in a flood control area that that's disclosed to the client. So this is another example of a form. Um, let me see if there's anything else in here. We did the lead-based paint. Uh, this is something called Megan's Law. Megan's Law is a, let me see, Megan's Law Disclosure of Registered Sex Offender Database. Remember that all people that are sex offenders that have been tried, imprisoned, or whatever, part of their release program is that they have to register that they're located in a certain area, and they're put into a database. What you're doing down here is that the requirement, the trigger that you have to do this is the sale or the lease of rental of all residential property, one to four units, no exceptions except for never occupied properties where a public report is required. That means that the public report should include that. Or properties exempt from the report, 
Okay, uh, what's happening here is disclosure requirement is every lease or rental agreement and every sales contract is required to include a statutory defined notice regarding the existence of this public access database. Okay, so in other words, they have to be, no it's in that, it's part of the requirements. Okay, so that's where that's required. Let's see if there's anything else. Oh, show you one more thing here. This is something called Melarus. I'm pretty darn familiar with this. What happens is, is that you can very well have where you have property that you're purchasing and you're used to the fact that you're going to pay principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, okay? Some of the other fees that you may pay on top of that would be like a homeowner's fee. So you need to be told that such an, uh, uh, an association exists. But one other fee that you may have, a special bond assessment. I have that where I live. And what this is, is that it's called Melarus, which is a way that you raise, they raise money the developer does in order to put in the infrastructure like the streets, curbs, gutters, whatever it happens to be because there's no money coming from any place else. The county, the city's not providing the money so they raise the money and then we as homeowners pay pay that bond back through on a monthly basis. So this is telling us that in the case of having any of Melarus or any bond assessments at all when is this required? The disclosure is required on the transfer exchange of residential property, one to four units, subject to a continuing lien securing uh, the levy of the special taxes. What that essentially means is the fact that you may have a lien that you may be able to pay off in escrow and it no longer is going to exist. Or you may very well find out that you're going to have to continue to pay that lien. All right? So um, that's what they're talking about there. Then uh, the disclosure requirement is the transfer must make a good faith effort to obtain a disclosure notice concerning the special tax assessment from each local agency that levies any kind of special tax assessment and disclose that to the people because they're going to have to pay for it. Okay, so that's another one. Um, here's a fun one here, military ordinance. Okay, if you're on a uh, military ordinance location, if you're on, a near, on or near a uh, military base, again, when you transfer the property is what's going to be required. This has to be the disclosure is disclosure is required when the transfer or the lessor has actual knowledge that the former military ordinance location, military training grounds, which may contain explosives, is within one mile of the property. A lot of people don't realize when they shoot, shoot those guns and they drop those bombs, not every one of those go off. You know, not every one explodes. Uh, so what ends up happening is, is there could possibly be ordinance that's still there that can hurt some people. Okay, that, in fact, you see that, you don't see that happen here a lot in the United States, but you do see it in other countries. Like, for example, if you go over to Southeast Asia, you go to places like in Thailand or Cambodia or Laos, you'll see people that have been, that have been, it happens in Iraq, too. People, kids get out there, people get out there, they walk through minefields, and the next thing you know, they're minus legs, or they get blown up. What causes that? The existing mines that were left over. In this case, it would be ordnance that was left, okay, that could possibly blow up. So anyway, that, that's what that is. Um, probably another one would be mold. Mold is a big issue nowadays. Mold is extremely... It's people are getting sick because of mold. Basically, what happens is, is mold is usually caused because of the fact that there's moisture in the air, and there's no way for the moisture to be taken out of the air. Uh, where do you see this? You see this a lot in bathrooms. 
In other words, people get up there in the morning, they take a shower, and if you walk into the bathroom and if they're not a real fastidious type people, you'll see, if you walk in at the wrong time, you'll see some black stuff in the ceiling that's uh, mold. And a lot of times if you take the sheetrock off the wall, you'll see that the insulation's got mold on it, okay? So you'll have mold in, you know, in the property. So this is disclosure if they have mold. That's the purpose of this. And it doesn't take a lot to make mold grow. I had a, I think it was a home inspector one time. What he did is he, he had said he went to a class where the instructor just took something like a piece of sheetrock, missprayed a little bit of moisture on it, and stuck it in a plastic bag. And before you know it, you have mold growing. So it doesn't take a lot to make the mold grow. And a lot of the older houses, they don't, do, they don't put exhaust fans in places that they need to, like the bathrooms. You know, you go there and there's no exhaust fan at all. So all that moisture that's in that bathroom in the, in the wintertime and the windows are closed is locked in there. There's no way for it to get out. And some people it really, uh, really affects. Um, another one is smoke detectors. Okay. Smoke detectors are uh, a requirement. Okay. And uh, it just says smoke detectors, all existing dwelling units must have smoke detectors centrally located outside each sleeping area, bedroom, uh, uh, bedroom or bedrooms, okay? In addition, new construction within a permit from that date must have hardwired smoke detector in each bedroom. Hardwired means that it has the electricity coming into the room to power up the smoke detector. In addition to that, you normally have, like in my house, a battery that goes along with it. And the concept of the battery is to cover the smoke detector during the time that you may very well have no electricity. So you don't want to have the electricity goes off and you lose the smoke detector. And those smoke detectors, I know because I have them in my house, if the battery starts to go low, they go beep. And it drives you nuts because you don't know where the darn smoke detector is, especially if it's in one central place, because especially if it's around the bedrooms, because each bedroom has one. So it's almost like you have to sit there and wait for this beep to go off. And what happens is the beep starts to get happen more and more as it gets closer to the battery running out of energy. And so you can go crazy sitting there waiting, okay, when is this thing going to beep again to find out which room it really is? Um, anyway, with that, I think we're pretty well finished with that. I think you know about the disclosure statements. I think the next time that we meet, we're going to be talking about something called real estate finance. And remember that on, oh, I'm sorry, remember that we're going to have the guest speaker about home inspection on the next show. Thank you very much. See you then.